0: Today on The Future This Week, real innovation between steam trains and convenience and the automation paradox.
1: I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights.
0: I'm Kai Riemer, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Instruction Research Group.
1: So Kai, reckon we should spend a few hours on
0: narrating the Apple event? It's tempting. We're getting new iPhones, probably the both of us. We'll see how that goes. We could do Uber. There's been a couple of stories Uber
1: should be a special episode. Yeah. There's a lot there to unpack.
0: There's a lot of automation kind of stories. That seems to be a thing again. Warnings. There's a one in CNN. You know, the same old, same old. All the jobs will disappear and the robots are coming for us. So that's not news. I've got one from mm-hmm.
1: City Lab that I think we should do. It's titled, This is what the transport revolution looks like.
0: Okay. What's it about? Trains. Trains. We should definitely do trains steam train i see yeah that's cool but also this automation thing has an angle and i think we we should do the one in the atlantic which is not about you know all the jobs are disappearing but actually how work is changing so that's a new angle we haven't seen that so let's do that those two those two uh let's start with the trains though okay sandra what happened in the future this week
1: Well, this didn't happen this week. This actually happened quite a while ago, to be exact, about 150 years ago, and it concerns the opening of the transcontinental railroad. The article comes from CityLab and got my attention because it was titled, this is what the transport
0: revolution looks like. Steam trains. Yes. You need to explain that to me. Steam trains is what a transport revolution looks like. Okay. That's interesting.
1: So the author, Laura Bliss, wanted to understand the true transport revolution. And that was the way of escaping the current news cycle around transportation, which these days she says is mostly driven by techno speculation rather than actual innovation and real developments driven by Uber or Lyft's claims to completely abolish car ownership or Elon Musk promising to take us to
0: Mars or autonomous vehicles being everywhere or indeed share bikes remember those we've seen a lot of those across the city for a few months and then they disappeared
1: as we discussed on the podcast almost yeah.
0: two years ago there's a few new ones popped up lime bikes with batteries so they're the next ones to disappear if, you know, have a look at the comment section and the ways in which they do and don't work. So it also makes the point that this is not real innovation. This is just fiddling around the edges of the current transport system. But steam trains back in the day in the 1800s was a magnificent innovation, a huge disruption to people's lives and also an opening up of an entire country.
1: So again, to understand a few things about the future of business, we're going to look at history. And in this case, the author actually did go and drive an actual coal-fired locomotive. So she was an engineer for the day on one of the locomotives on the Nevada Northern Railway. That's somewhere in Eli, Nevada, if any of our listeners want to go and try it out.
0: Yeah, a remote town in Nevada, apparently. And she got to know the locomotive 40 known as the Queen or the Ghost Train of Old Eli which was built in 1910 and today is run by a little collective who basically run this as a historic museum on wheels as an experiential museum for tourists and train enthusiasts.
1: But in terms of transport revolutions, these little engines and the transcontinental railroad actually did change everything. So this was a true transport revolution. So if we were to step back into the past for a second. First, the transcontinental railroad drove the expansion and development of cities out westward.
0: And as the name suggests, the railroad spans the entire continent from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific in the end. It
1: changed communications because it opened the path for phone lines and for
0: telegraph. Yeah, and most extraordinary. And I kind of knew this, but had to actually look for the details. It actually gave us time. And that is not just true for the U.S., but it's actually a phenomenon more broadly in the world. It was the railroads that spanned the entire continent that for the first time made it necessary to coordinate time. So when railroads first started out, every part of the U.S. had different local time, not time zones. And it could be 12.45 in one place and in another and 2.47 in another place. So it was really all over the place. People were using the sun, the natural time. There was the official clock in the marketplace. But apart from this, there was no coordination of time. And so what happened was it became incredibly complex to run trains across the continent. And the timetables that were printed, the name actually originates from the fact that there was different time in every place which had to be coordinated, which gave it the name timetable. It took more than 40 years since the publication of the first such timetables that the U.S. finally agreed and implemented standardized time zones which happened on November 18, 1883. Fun fact. So... Time zones are a direct result of running railroads at speed across vast distances, which made it necessary to coordinate time and to give us time, so to speak, which is an extraordinary innovation if you think about it, compared to, you know, things we call innovation today. That really changed people's lives and for the first time you could coordinate communication across an entire continent.
1: So time zones, telegraph, phone lines carrying fresh produce, bringing up new cities, moving the wounded around, moving even ice around the country. This was really a giant innovation project, the true transport revolution. There are two interesting aspects that we want to focus on. And first is that to build and run this 19th century rail network, it actually took a tremendous public-private partnership to execute. That meant that you had to have land grants for the private companies to build this. You had to have tremendous private capital to invest in what was a very, very long term project. You also had to have tremendous amounts of manual labor, which is also one of the dark sides of the transcontinental railroad where thousands of people died in the attempt to build this and entire native communities in America were killed or displaced to make way for this project, or cheerful cheerful there, and also tremendous advances in engineering that were required to achieve this. So First, I want to focus on the public-private partnership. I mean, this is not something that we're really seeing in the big transport innovations that we're faced with today.
0: Oh, If you think of Uber, you're seeing quite the opposite, right? You're seeing disruptors, innovators that are very much at loggerheads with regulation and governments that openly oppose government regulation. So it's far away from public-private partnerships. We're still building roads and railways in that way, but it's not in the sense of pushing the envelope and innovating.
1: This is where I want to raise another important point that the article makes and that is around big ideas. The transcontinental railroad was one of these really big ideas and there was an interesting article in the Journal of Design and Science, which is a joint venture between MIT Press and the MIT Media Lab and The article was by Nicolas Negroponte, who was talking about the big idea famine. And he was saying that he thinks that 30 years from now, people looking back at what we were doing today will say that we didn't tackle the really big, really hard, really long-term problems He was talking in particular about research, but also around innovation, that the way we like to portray ourselves, especially with narratives coming out of places like Silicon Valley, is that we are a disruptive and creative society, one where entrepreneurship is widespread, where startups and big companies alike tackle big innovative projects, tackle moonshots, but rather than most of our accomplishments can only be counted in terms of the money that was made or the size of IPOs rather than big innovations. And he's got a couple of examples, and I just want to raise two of them. One relates directly to our transport revolution, which is he makes the point that the startups of today just focus on thoughtless ways to deliver food or entertain ourselves or do our laundry using yet another app. And that often the real discoveries or the real technologies are trivialized by the startup process that they have to go through to meet the expectations of venture capitalists or early stage investors. And he makes the point that, for instance, a startup using gene replication to make real sirloin steaks without cattle and very little water... I actually was guided through the venture capital process into making leather instead to avoid the problems that would be posed by the Federal Drug Administration. Hence, the VCs would get their money back on investment much faster. It would be cash flow positive much faster rather than tackling a really hard problem. But the idea was that these are not world-changing advancements, but rather small incremental changes. The... Second point around our current famine of big ideas was government involvement. And we touched upon this a little bit with our public-private partnership, but he asked us to imagine classes of problems that will take 10 or more years to fix, problems that are really hard to address, where we see no economic return for a very, very long time, where we have very large horizons, but also very high risks. And solutions to those problems cannot be achieved by governments alone or by large private companies, but require the types of cooperation that we haven't seen in a very long time. And indeed, in U.S. and in other places, government labs in collaboration with universities used to serve this for a very long time. But investment is continually drying up and there are less and less bold investments. Rather, the focus is on creating IP and creating short term returns as well.
0: Yes, on the one hand, the structures that we're living in, investors in Silicon Valley and more generally, venture capitalists want to divest fairly quickly. They're not really interested in the entrepreneurship side of things. They are interested in monetizing their investments. We have at the stock market quarterly results to be published, which means there's every incentive to optimize for short-term gain rather than long-term innovation and it's actually quite interesting there was a story a few years back where Porsche the German carmaker refused to be listed in New York at the stock exchange because they said if they published quarterly results no one would be able to understand those because production is very uneven across the year and it wouldn't make sense but it's very hard to resist this short-term nature which flies in the face of these big ideas you know these big projects But the other observation I wanted to make is you could say but look at digital technologies and apps and Facebook and Google and they have brought about big changes to our everyday lives which is true, but they were not moonshot projects. They have brought about massive changes to our everyday lives, and this is the discussion that we've been having because a lot of those changes are not necessarily positive, at least not for everyone. And certainly these companies didn't set out to bring about those changes. They are byproducts of emerging changes, emerging innovation. They're unexpected. They're not nation building, nation-rallying, moonshot or indeed Mars shot programs. And so I want to tie this in with another observation which will link us to our second story of the day. And that is that a lot of the innovation that we have today is incremental and it's driven by convenience, by making our lives incrementally easier, less effortful. And for that very reason, they are deliberately small innovations. They're small innovations, which because you roll them out at scale, because they're digital and you can have millions of people use your apps, food delivery or car sharing, ride hailing apps. The innovation that each brings is fairly small, but because they happen at scale, you make a lot of money out of them.
1: The article in the New York Times is actually titled The Tyranny of Convenience by Tim Wu, came out last year, and does caution us not to presume that convenience is always good, and that it actually has a very complex relationship two other things that we might care about. One of the ones that the article raises is that of preferences, that convenience might trump our preferences and we will choose certain things, even though we disagree maybe with the values behind it or the business models that stand behind it because it's the convenient thing to do. It might be not the type of food that we would most enjoy eating, but it's the most convenient food to eat. Similarly, he points to the fact that Inconvenience or difficulty or even labor is always seen as something to be avoided. Yet there are particular benefits to things being a little bit difficult or things being a little bit hard. We've recently had on the podcast as a guest, Professor Jonathan Haidt from NYU, whose last book, The Cuddling of the American Mind, and we'll put all the links to the interview in the show notes, was talking about the fact that Generation Z, Generation Z is one that's grown up without being exposed to anything difficult or anything that challenges their beliefs. And this has led to a generation that has very little resilience but also very little tolerance for difficult conversations or for difficult engagements.
0: And this is where I want to bring in the second story for today because we look at technology, we look at automation and what it does and in our private lives we want everything more convenient, we automate things away Things that no doubt have made our lives more pleasant, easier. No one would want to do without a washing machine or without the car. And so we like those conveniences. But with convenience driving much of innovation today, we are outsourcing a lot of our decisions to algorithms, food choices, what we're going to watch, what we're going to read. So a lot of things are presented for us. We don't really have to expend much cognitive or indeed physical effort to go about our daily lives. Now, the article in The Atlantic that we're discussing makes the point that what automation does at work in the workplace for many white-collar workers is actually the opposite, which creates a real paradox and also a real problem.
1: The is titled AI is coming for your favorite menial tasks from The Atlantic by Fred Benison. And the main point it makes is that as AI gets better and better at performing routine tasks in the workplace, only stressful tasks will remain. Hence, this will transform the work experience in not a necessarily good way. And the author makes his point reflecting on the time when he was the vice president for data at Kickstarter.
0: So the point he makes is that when Kickstarter started out, his staff would take a lot of joy and pride in approving and then seeing to success those early successful projects on Kickstarter. They would gather in the office, they would celebrate. But then over time, as the platform grew, the backlog grew as well and people couldn't actually stay on top of vetting and approving projects. And so they had to automate some of that work. And Obviously, algorithms, deep learning can deal with all the kind of normal tasks they are really good when it comes to things that are straightforward. So what happened was that all of the kind of cases that were going to be obvious failures or inappropriate were rejected by the algorithm. All the ones that were obviously going to be good and successful were approved by the algorithm. And what people were left to deal with was all the kind of difficult cases, the edge cases, the one that were maybe good, kind of good, which in turn did not give workers the same kind of satisfaction because the things that were really great projects were now approved by the algorithm, whereas the kind of things that people would get to see were the things that were kind of mm, meh, not that great.
1: So... Interestingly, this is one of those articles that highlights the effects of automation and artificial intelligence on work and locates it not in the quantity of work that will be displaced, which is what many of the articles predicting 40% of our jobs will disappear, half of our jobs will disappear, not in the quantity of work or workers that will be displaced, but rather in the quality of the employment. And often we've seen arguments that discuss the displacement of middle-class jobs and the replacement of those occupations with lower skilled, lower wage ones like driving an Uber or delivering food. But this article makes a more nuanced argument for the quality of the work, where the tasks that are automated are actually the tasks that are fairly straightforward, that do not
0: require a high cognitive load. So the article makes the point that some menial aspect to work is actually part of what makes work satisfactory. So we often hear the point that, yes, algorithms will come, they will take away the menial parts of work and we should all be happy with this and so the work that is left is really the ones that need human judgment and creativity and all the rest of it. But the article points out that If all that you're left with is what the algorithm can't handle, the difficult judgment cases, but you don't get the joy out of getting some easy runs on the board with the decisions that are straightforward, work is not the same. It can be stressful, it's less satisfying, and actually leaves people unhappy with their jobs and going home without much of a sense of achievement. So
1: hang on, because some people might call bullshit on us here. Isn't there actually a number of paradoxes in what we're saying? First, on the one hand, we're saying there should be more difficulty in our lives and we should have more challenges, but now we're complaining there are too many challenges at work. Yeah,
0: you could look at it that way, but the problem here is that difficulty in a task is only good when you have a sense of achievement, when you get to master a skill. And actually, the things we're talking about, often involve menial parts, right? Sticking with a task, persisting. What we're talking about here is that work is actually deprived of these aspects and what we're left with is the complex, just the difficult, not the fact that there is difficulty in our life. Work is just turned into this constant barrage of Difficult decisions, complex things, organizing things that the algorithms can't handle. So that's a very different thing to having difficulty in your life.
1: And then second, you could argue here that what we want to automate at work is actually the boring, repetitive tasks that have a known outcome. And this is why we actually welcome automation and artificial intelligence. It will free us up from all these menial tasks.
0: So there's two things we can say here. First... We can't speak for everyone. There's probably people who like repetitive work, the kind of things that someone might automate, someone else might actually enjoy. And I have this sometimes. I really don't like admin work, but at the same time, if I have to do it, it sometimes gives me at least some sense of achievement. But the second point is that The things that can be automated oftentimes will be automated because it's a cost issue, of course. It's an efficiency issue, and so we say that we're freeing up valuable time, which is then expended on the more difficult things. So that's the response to the second seeming paradox.
1: And then there's a third problem that we want to highlight here, what seems now to be an increasing imbalance between what happens in our private lives, where there's more and more convenience and less and less friction in every aspect of our lives, and at least for some of us, a work life that is increasingly complex, increasingly ambiguous, increasingly demanding, for which we don't seem to be properly
0: prepared. And channeling Jonathan Haidt here, we could say that if a generation of workers who are used to an easy, convenient digital life enters the workforce, where work is now, due to similar use of technology, more and more complex and ambiguous and requires resilience, we might actually have a problem that is in addition to the ones that Jonathan Haidt already points out when it comes to lack of resilience.
1: So where does this leave us? Do I have to give up my Uber to be better prepared for difficult work?
0: So do I have to love doing my admin work, my receipt claims?
1: I think it leaves us in a place where we need to be more overall conscious of the choices we make and the trade-offs that we make for convenience in our lives, but also in the way we design our jobs and our work. Most of us are involved and do have a say in how jobs are designed and what we choose to do and not choose to do at work but also in how we make choices in our private life but there's also maybe a bit of space here to do more research obviously some of these problems are a little more complex than first thought and the space that we need to occupy with some of this research is not restricted to either the workplace or our private lives but now is increasingly diffuse so maybe a new paper titles in order
0: well you could envision several because i do think there's genuine need for more research around what automation does to work, but here's one. The automation paradox, the increasing difficulty of work in a world of convenience.
1: The other thing we might be more mindful of is how we really success in this world. What does it mean to be successful, both in terms of innovation, if you think about the big ideas and our first story, but also in terms of the individual, given our second story?
0: And this is where we would like to invite everyone to consider coming to Disrupt Sydney in Sydney on the 20th of September. It's a full day event information at www.disruptsydney.net and the theme is indeed rethinking success and we're looking at the full bandwidth from economic success success in life and success in the workplace and that's all we have time for today see you soon on the future next week this week yes but next week on the
1: future this week next week. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group.
1: And every week right here with us our sound editor Megan Wedge who makes us sound good
0: and keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollock.
1: You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to SPI@Sydney.edu.au. When, when did the, when did the railroad start out? And so it took about. Hang on. It took about. Uh,
1: Get to it.
0: <laughs> Sorry. No. No. Are you showing us how long it took? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Megan, you should be on this podcast.
0: And it took a, it took more than forty years <laughs> since the <laughs> Yes it did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.